I'd like to introduce to you, to the best of my ability this morning, the King of Christmas. The King of Christmas was announced in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, when the angel said unto the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day, born in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We have a saving King this morning. Luke chapter 2, 14, the angels came alongside of this angel and said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. This King is the one who brings peace on this earth. And Luke chapter 2, verse 29 through 33 Simeon announces in looking at this king, baby Jesus, says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. This king is salvation. This king is a light of revelation to those who are not Jews. Later on, Anna, looking upon this same baby, says, Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This king provides the redemption of Jerusalem. Matthew chapter 2. I want to read... To you this morning, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judea, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. This is the king of which I'd like to talk with you about this morning, using primarily Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 through 19, and the emphasis in that chapter of a priestly king, and what role that has for us. But I want us to have the whole view of Jesus as our king, and uh, there is someone that can give you much more of an elegant and powerful 
explanation of the Bible as a whole uh, on Jesus as our King. And I'd like for us this morning, as you're turning to Hebrews 7, to listen to this one. Uh, I've introduced you to this one before. Uh, Green Pines of a few years ago heard this uh, same passage uh, from Dr. S.M. Lockridge, who is one of the uh, was one of the best uh, eloquent preachers uh, that you could hear. And this is what he has to say about this king that we're talking about this morning. So let's listen for a few minutes to Dr. S. M. Lockridge, Lockridge referring to this king. But my king was born king. The Bible says my king is a seven-way king. He's a king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's a king of Israel. That's a national king. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. Well, I wonder, do you know him? David said, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the fundament showeth his handiwork. My king uh, is, a, is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supplies. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's a centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's august and he's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He is the supreme problem in high criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He is the cardinal necessity for spiritual religion. He's the miracle of the age. He's, he, yes, he is. He is the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. Well, this is my king. He is a key. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. 
Do you know him? Well, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Uh, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's in the... Yeah! 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 He's indescribable. Yes, he is. Good God. He... He's indescribable. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't you can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. Yeah. And thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And ever, and ever, how long is that? And ever, and ever, and when you get through with all of the forevers, then amen. amen. Good God Almighty. Amen. Amen. And that's the king that's born on Christmas morning. There's some things you just can't quote, you just got to hear for yourself. Uh, that's our king. And I just want to make sure, in case you don't hear any good preaching, at least you hear something uh, from somebody this morning, uh, that if you don't light up there, then you're dead. You're just dead. Uh, Hebrews 7 is about this king and his role as a priest. This one that we've heard about, the indescribable. And I would add indestructible. If I could add anything, I would just add that little bit. The indestructible King, our priest, king. And it mandates, it compels, it, de- it is demanding a response of us. And I want to share with you at the end exactly what this response is. And so we're going to talk about a character by the name of Melchizedek. And it does play a role in who this king is that we're worshiping this morning. And so... In honor of this passage, in honor of our King, let's stand as we read Hebrews chapter 7, reading verses 1, and we'll stop at verse 19 this morning. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or the days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, 
though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed them who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This became, comes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but the power of an indestructible life. For witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You may be seated. The entirety of this chapter is given with this main point in mind that Jesus is a better priest. Jesus is a better priest. But in this first part, verses 1 through 19, it also brings hints of the idea that Jesus is not just a priest. He's a king priest. Our priest king. This is the metaphor that is given to us, the image that is given to us in the Christmas narratives as the wise men were seeking that one who was born king. You know, undoubtedly today there was probably someone, three or four uh, children under the age of 18 who may be, if the Lord tarries and the country still survives, a president somewhere in this country. But no one is seeking them out. No one is looking for them to pay respects to this one who may one day be present. But they did with Jesus because it wasn't one day that it would happen that Jesus came in as king. And so it was totally appropriate for wise men from the east, from other nations, to bow down before someone that needs to have their diaper changed. Why? Because this one is born king. That is one of the points of the author of the book of Hebrews. And he says, I want you to consider this man Melchizedek. We see Melchizedek first in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, verse 17 through 20. Many of you who were with us a few years ago may have remembered this. Uh, this was the story of Abraham conquering over uh, the kings and rescuing his nephew Lot. And on the way back, he meets in Genesis 14 a character by the name of Melchizedek. The Bible says uh, that this Melchizedek is king of Salem and he brought up bread and wine and that he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed them and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This one little passage that you see in Genesis, you see later in Psalm 110, verse 4, in which Jesus also makes reference to Psalm 110, saying that this chapter is in reference to the Messiah, uh, is the only mention of this character in the Old Testament. But it is this character that the author is highlighting here. 
And he says, first of all, that his name is Melchizedek, uh, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. And we see in verse 2 that we uh, he translates for us what his name means. Melchizedek literally means, but in the Hebrew language, the king of righteousness. And he says, consider this man whose name was the king of righteousness. He is a type of one who will come after him. He is a pointer of Jesus Christ, who also is the king of righteousness. And so when we look and we consider who is born on Christmas morning, we must need that the king that these wise men were seeking was the king and is the king of righteousness. All that is right with God, all that is right in this world is a reflection of God and it is owned by Jesus. If you see something in this life that reflects God, that reflects love, reflects holiness, reflects his justice, Jesus is king of it. He is king of it. And so we know as we read this passage, just as Melchizedek is the king of righteousness in verse 2, he is also Jesus, our king, the king of righteousness. And then he goes on in verse 2 and gives us a little bit more explanation. The Bible says in Genesis uh, uh, chapter 14, that he was king of Salem. Many scholars believe that this was the precursor to Jerusalem, that Jerusalem would be the city, and this is just before named Jerusalem, named Salem, or Salem. Well, that is, uh, the Hebrew writer here is bringing out the idea that this is in reference to the Hebrew word Salom, that he is not only the king of righteousness by his name, but he is the king of Salom, the king of of peace as given in Genesis chapter 14. This one Melchizedek is a reference, a type who will lead to one day Jesus who is indeed the king of peace. And so when we uh, have on Christmas morning the angels announcing uh, to the shepherds that there is peace on earth to those of goodwill. He's saying that in Jesus Christ is the controller, the owner, the possessor of peace. If you have peace in your heart, if you have peace with God, you only have it because Jesus is giving it to you. And that is why it is important to be under the authority of this king. This king of righteousness, we may one day also plead, will you also be the king of peace in our life? As we keep on reading, the Bible says in verse 2 that Abraham gave a tenth of everything. In other words, he shows honor to this one named Melchizedek. Now in verse 3, he makes reference to this one. He says he's without father or mother or genealogy. Now what is he saying here? Well, what he's bringing out is that Genesis chapter 14 makes no mention whatsoever of the genealogy of Melchizedek. The reader of the Bible has no idea who the father or the mother is. And so, he is making, the author of Hebrews is making an argument from silence. This was a Hebrew tradition interpretation at that time, that if, the, if it didn't say it, therefore it didn't happen. So what he's saying is because there's no mention of father and mother, you can say that there is no father and mother. There is no beginning or end of his life. Now he says, Now, this is pointing to Jesus Christ, who is also without beginning and without end. You need to understand that what we have in Jesus Christ born is something very strange for us to understand. That what is born is the one who always was. What is born, he is born, is the one who will never end. 
we have a king without beginning and without end. And so uh, and we can rightfully say that Jesus was not created, but Jesus entered into this world. That's why we have the word Advent. Advent means coming, the coming. And so when we talk about Advent, we are saying, we are professing that Jesus was not born, Jesus was not made, but Jesus came, he advented, he came into history. Just as Melchizedek is without father or mother in genealogy, is not recorded, but we have the Son of God who continues a priest forever. Our eternal priest, our eternal king. Verse 4, see how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. It goes on, explains that a little bit. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment of law to make tithes from the people, that is, from the brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. It was part of uh, the, the, the rule, the law of the Old Testament, that people were to support the Levite tribe who had no portion of the land in Canaan, uh, so all the other tribes were to give a tenth to the Levite tribe who was serving in the tabernacle. And the Levites themselves would get a tenth of what they had to the Lord through the high priest. And so it is referencing back to that system and saying, hey, you know the father of all those Levites, Abraham himself? Abraham gave tithes to this man, Melchizedek. All right. So what's being said here is that whoever you give tithe to, you are recognizing them as superior. So when Abraham is giving tithes to Melchizedek, Melchizedek is referenced as superior to Abraham. Melchizedek is a type of Christ, i.e., therefore, Jesus is greater than Abraham. What we have born in that Christmas morning in Bethlehem is a king who is greater than Abraham. Now, this is something Jesus himself professed and almost was stoned for because he was asked, who are you? Were you? Are you older than Abraham? And Jesus, in response to that question, said, Before Abraham was, I am. And the Pharisees of the day did not like that one bit and uh, was trying to stone Jesus. Jesus is greater than Abraham. And so we go on, verse 6. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham, blessed him, he had promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one who has testified that he lives. Then he goes on verse 9 and 10, he explains something. Because Levi, and physically speaking, was still in the loins of Abraham, had not yet been born. He was just not even a thought yet, but would descend from Abraham. So consequently, whatever Abraham does... Levi also does, and all the children thereafter. It's the same way that when Adam sinned, all those who would come from Adam, we too enter into the sin of Adam, okay? Because we descend from him, and that's the kind of the argument that's being taken place here with uh, this man Abraham and Levi. He says just because Abraham's doing it, it is a way of saying that Levi himself acknowledged Melchizedek as the priest over them the priest over the Levitical priest. And so that's what verse 8 and 9 and 10 is bringing out. And so as we read verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek? What he's saying here is the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament didn't cut it, didn't make it. 
we need someone greater, a better priest. What you have with Jesus in Christmas is a king who is priest. A king who is priest, who is a better priest than the Levites. And so he says, you know, the uh, verse 11 is evident. If the Levite priests were cutting it, were making it done, what, what I'm talking about making it done, making us right with God, then there'd be no more need for a further priest. But there is. In verse 12, he says, because this priest is not of the Levite tribe, which the law mandates, then something's going to have to do different with the law. All right, and that's what he alludes to in verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. What tribe is he talking about? Well, verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. In other words, the Old Testament did not mandate, issue, or provide for a priest to come out of Judah, but only out of Levi. What was mandated to come out of Judah. Well, Genesis 49.10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What was to come from Judah? Kings were to come from Judah. And then the Bible says, A king that would go on forever. And so consequently, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus by, uh, by birth was of the Judah, was rightfully king. But he is also of the order of Melchizedek outside of the tribe of Levi. And God had pronounced him as a priest. Now, verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arrives in the likeness of Melchizedek. Now, verse 16, who has become a priest and on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. But the power of an indestructible life. We have an indestructible king. We have an indestructible priest. I love that word. It's a great word. In a house filled with children, indestructible is a good word indeed. Uh, It will be thoroughly tested. uh, Whether it is indestructible. Right now we're trying to sell a car. And folks are making comments. You've got scratches all over this car. Well, what do you expect when you live in a, in a household with family, with children, and a dog? Scratches happen. All right? Just, I'm thankful it's working. All right? Uh, it, and, and, and everything gets tested. Listen, what we have in Jesus Christ is one who is tested. Why is it important for them, this one, to be indestructible? It is important because this priest... This king will lay charge over sinners. And this priest will make a sacrifice to a holy God for sinners such as me. This one must have a life that can endure the wrath of of God on my sin. And when I consider my sin alone in the hidden recesses of my heart, I cower before God. How much more when I multiply it by all the people in this room, all the people in this country, in this world, and I multiply that time's history, and yet Jesus has such a life that it can bear the burden of all that sin, come before the wrath of God, and come out still. That is indestructible. How do we know he's indestructible? Because he died and it didn't stop him. He rose again from the grave. 
He is an indestructible king. He is an indestructible priest. And therefore, God gives to him the role of priest, not because of him coming from Levi, but because, hey, you know what? If you can rise from the dead, you get to be priest. You get to be king. And so that's what is happening in this passage. Verse 17. For as witness of him, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I think about, I think about the black box, you know? Every time there's a plane crash, everybody's looking for the black box, so-called indestructible. And if it can endure a plane crash, it must be pretty indestructible. And the question often comes, well, why don't they make the plane out of that same stuff, you know, Uh, if it's indestructible? You know, and, and that's the thing, it can endure the crash of sin and still continue on. Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 17, He will go on. The priests of the Levites today would meet their demise. They would die. A new priest would have to come on board. They would have to be retrained. And they themselves would have to have sin. And they would sacrifice for their own sins before they could ever sacrifice for the sins of the nations. And, and But, the, you know, in your lifetime, you could come across one or two or maybe more priests who would die in your lifetime, perhaps. But this one will never die. And that's important. I'll tell you why in just a little bit. Verse 18, on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside. So now he's talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament, it has to be set aside before us to have a priest outside the Levitical order. We've got to, we've got to have something new, something different. The old prescribes the Levites. We've got to have something different. But it's okay to set aside the Old Testament because of its weakness and uselessness. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. For the law made no one complete. For the law could not restore that person to glory. The law could not conform that person to the image of God. What could the law do? The law could convict you. The law could condemn you. The law could judge you and can tell you what you were not. But for the purposes God had in mind, it was useless. There needed to be something else. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. I love that passage. He speaks to it again at the end of this chapter. This hope that we have. Verse 25. Consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. Through whom since he always lives to make intercession for him. Next week Lord willing. I'm going to talk about this passage especially as Jesus as the priest. In verse 25 and, and, and especially. But let me just kind of get into this a little bit. What does he do? What is our hope? How is it we draw near to God? The king commands us to draw near to God. But the priest enables us to draw near to God. Jesus is both eternally. He is eternally commanding us to draw near to us. But as priest, he is eternally providing for us to draw near to God. That passage where it says in verse 25, he's making intercession for them. He's always living to making intercession for them. What is he interceding for? To whom is he interceding for? He's interceding for those who will draw near to God. 
through Christ. How can they draw near to God? It is through Christ. As the wise men sought the king of old, drew near. We are to seek and draw near to God. Here's how it works. God, through his Holy Spirit, convicts me of my sin, brings me a holy discontent for my sin, gives me a hunger for righteousness, a thirst for Jesus. And that thirst causes me to mourn my sinful condition, but also brings me to be meek in that I trust in God's provision. I trust in God's provision. And God's provision is given to me in Jesus Christ, which says this, Jared, you're a sinner. And God has holy wrath for that sin. And it is before Him. And it is ever before Him. And Jesus says, it's okay. I am in the throne room of God, throne room of grace. And I am His Son. And I am a perfect, holy one. And I've paid a price to pay the penalty for your sin. But I say, but, but Jesus, it seems that I can't stop myself from sinning. It seems that I can say with certainty that tomorrow or sometime in the future, I will sin again. What will you do with the sin of the future? He says the same thing I do with the sin of your past. You see, Jesus is saying, I am ever before God, the Father. And I'm ever praying on your behalf. And I say, well, well, Jesus, there's sometimes I sin and I don't even know that I'm sinning. It's not even in my knowledge. And Jesus says, but I know the sin of your own heart, that which you're not even aware of. And that which you're not even aware, I say before God the Father, God the Father, you see Jared? He's in pride, and he doesn't even realize it yet. God, you hate pride. There's no cause for him to be pride. You are the king. You are God. He is not. He has betrayed you. He is committing treason against you. But God the Father, Jesus says, lay it on my account. I intercede before God the Father. Lay it on my account. You see, salvation... It's not just a transaction that has occurred in the past. It's not just something God has done in the past. It's not something that I have done just in the past. It is something being done still. And I wonder, well, Jesus, you know, I sin a lot. What if there's some time I'm sinning and you're not there? And Jesus says, that won't happen. Because I am indestructible. I have no beginning. I have no end. I am ever before God the Father. There will not be a moment in history where I will not before be before God the Father. Where you are, you know that I will be before God the Father. And I will be interceding on your behalf. And so, we have a king 
who is priest. And he says, I intercede and I know that God the Father will hear my prayers because my sacrifice is effective for you. You see, as a priest, not only do I intercede for you, I provide the sacrifice for you. And it is effective. And so, Jesus as king, as priest, as the indestructible life, saves us from God. Do you understand that? You're not just being saved from your sin. He saves us from God. His holy wrath. But not only you're saved from God's holy wrath, you're saved to something. You're saved towards something. And this is where it's really interesting. You're saved from God and you're saved to God. You're saved from the holy wrath of God and you're saved toward the mercy and grace of God. You're saved from the place of condemnation of being a child of wrath, a child of Satan, and you're saved toward being a child of God and a child of His inheritance, a child of promise. You're saved from His condemnation to saved to His provision and grace. And so, He says rightfully, those who draw near to God, Through him, he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 19, because I have this better hope in Jesus that I can be like Christ, God working in me, that there is eternal life provided for me, that there is mercy and grace given to me. Because of this better hope is introduced, it is through this better hope through which we draw near to God. That's my king, my righteous king, my king of peace, my indestructible king. That's my king. Because he is all of that, we draw near to God. Not just one time in our life, but we draw near to God continually as he is continually interceding. And I do believe as I read this passage, what is one of the things that Jesus is interceding for me about? He's praying that I'll draw near to him. He's praying that I'll draw near to him. Notice the last bit of this book in Hebrews 13, verse 21. God is equipping us with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. How is God working in us that which is pleasing in his sight? Jesus Christ is interceding on my behalf for that which is pleasing in God's sight to be in my life. So listen, whenever you have a desire to do something good, something holy, something loving, it could very well be that's because Jesus prayed for that in your life. And when you have an inclination to be selfish and prideful, mean, and ugly, you are working in direct opposition to Jesus' prayer. And Jesus says, that's of the devil. That's of the devil. 
So I would encourage you to have the same response that the wise men had, that Abraham had. Upon seeing a priest king, if Abraham did that to Melchizedek, how much more should we also respond to Jesus, our priest king? The Bible says that these men gave gifts. Why did they give gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Interesting enough, frankincense was the only spice used on the altar of incense in the tabernacle of worship. Myrrh also is incorporated within incense. Could it be that these gifts were symbolic of Jesus being a king and a priest? We'll give you gold and frankincense. Why did Abraham give a tithe, a tenth of the spoils of the war he was involved in? Is it because Melchizedek needed this money? Was it because Jesus needed some gold and frankincense and myrrh as a baby? When you give a gift to Christ, it's a way of saying that this, this joy, this one that I pursue, it's not for the hope of getting rich with things from you that I worship you. I've not come to worship you for these things, but I've come to worship you for yourself. And I want to intensify this desire. I want to demonstrate it by giving up things and the hope of enjoying you more and not these things. I want to give to you what you do not need and things that I might enjoy. I want to give them to you because I am saying sincerely and seriously, you are my treasure And not these things. So when you have a priest king. What do you give someone? You give them your heart. How do you demonstrate your heart? By telling the king that your heart is not seeking after gold. And sense the luxuries of this world. Things that we might enjoy and that God has no use for. But we give them to him anyway. Because it's a way of giving our heart. I pray that this morning that you will draw near to God. Because God has provided everything that you need to do so. What is it that you provide? Well, you get to provide sin. You get to provide disobedience, pride, selfishness, greed. Coveting in your heart. Anger, all these things you get to provide. And God says, I want you to give all that you are to me. And you say, but God, it's not pretty. No, it's not. But you can't be pretty enough anyway. I want your heart. And let's see what I can do with your heart. Give me all that you are and the sin that's there. And God will forgive And he says, and I will intercede and I will work and pray in your behalf so that you can bring glory to God. Just draw near. Will you draw near this morning to Christ, born king of righteousness, of peace, a priest greater than Abraham and indestructible for you? Let's pray. Father.